Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just a bit of house cleaning, as we usually do at the beginning of each episode. We had an awesome response from our last episode on Jennifer Doulis. What a hot-wrenching case just seems so unnecessary to me. Both sides of the family, Jennifer's side and Fotos's side, had more money than they knew what to do with. And yeah, you're going to be divorced and it's going to be difficult, but it's going to get better. And the weirdest thing about this case is it did seem to take some planning on Fotos's part, but it was crappy planning, you know? He sneaks up on a bike, you know, allegedly, he was never convicted, but it seems to have been going that way, and he was charged with homicide here, right? And he does what he does, and then drives all over Hartford with his girlfriend dumping bags of bloody clothes, paper towels, zip ties, their DNA's all mixed with it. I mean, that's a plan? Crazy, absolutely crazy. And one thing I wanted to mention to you guys, I think I had a bit of a leap of logic here. I was thinking about it, and I wanted to bounce it off you. The kidnapping charge in this case has always kind of stood out like a sore thumb for me. I had mentioned that Fotis had taken Jen from her house, and I then kind of made a leap that she was dismembered. That doesn't have to be the case. And I was saying dismemberment because of all those bags Fotis and Michelle Traconis were seen getting rid of. No body parts were actually recovered. So that may have been a leap of logic on my part. And she could have just been buried somewhere. That's probably better. It's all horrific. But that's where I think I had a leap in logic. I leapt from all those bags to her body having to have been dismembered. I know it's a crazy conversation we're having right now. But it doesn't have to be. It didn't have to be dismemberment, I guess. So that was kind of a leap on my part. And it came into my consciousness as I thought more about it. Let me know what you think. Send me an email at barry at bostonconfidential.net. That is the best platform for all communication. If I've been slow in getting back to you, I do apologize. We're growing and things are getting bigger. And it's just a lot more to deal with. But Still enjoying myself. I hope you guys are still enjoying the show. And while I have you here, guys, if there's any way possible, you could throw a five-star review into the Apple podcasting section. I know it's a little difficult to find your way through the Apple website. They kind of make leaving a review a bit difficult. But if you could find your way through and leave us a five-star review on Apple, I'd really appreciate it. We've received some negative reviews, and I've kind of traced it to when I was speaking about 
defunding the police, disbanding the police. And I had said that it was the dumbest political proposition or proposal in American history. And we're living the results of that now, as in New York, where they cut a billion dollars from the budget, and now it's a cesspool again. People seemingly didn't like me pointing out it's pretty commonsensical. Less police, more crime, right? That's where we are. That's where I am. It's common sense. And I try to have this podcast kind of devoid of politics. I know I had mentioned capital punishment one time as well, but that's where I am. I don't know why we can't interact on those issues, but they've seemingly resulted in some negative reviews. So if you could find your way to Apple Podcast review section and give Boston Confidential a five-star review, I'd really appreciate it. Otherwise, let's get on to the case. Guys, this is the heartbreaking case of the Bear Brook murders, guys. I've also seen it referred to as the Allenstown Four, as the bodies were found in Allenstown, New Hampshire. And man, it's just a crazy case. And to be honest with you, I don't know how much the town of Allenstown, New Hampshire, I don't know if they played a part in this at all, but there's a big forest there and that's where bodies were found. I'll tell you a little bit about Allenstown, New Hampshire. It's an absolutely gorgeous spot. Typical New Hampshire. I'd say most of New Hampshire is absolutely gorgeous. And Allenstown is about 15 or 20 minutes southeast of Concord, New Hampshire. And Concord is the state capital. But just outside Concord, things kind of go pretty rural quickly. And Allenstown is that close to Concord, but it is kind of rural. And this section is all forest where this occurred. Again, I don't know how much of a role the town played in this. But let me tell you the case details and you can make your own decision on that. We do have to jump back into the time machine, guys, to 1985. And it's kind of strange how this all happened. So I'll just let you know the story. So it's November 1985. A man is hunting in the woods in Allenstown, New Hampshire, and comes across an oil drum, one of those 55-gallon big oil drums. I'm sure you've seen them. And he gets curious, not much going on in the woods. I don't know if the deer weren't around or what, but he opens it, and what he sees is horrifying. It's the skeletal remains of a woman seemingly in her 20s or 30s, and then a child between the age of 8 and 10. And this was a little girl, guys, and it scares the hunter. He drops the lid and goes and reports it to the police, and the police start their investigation on this. And it's in such a weird location, guys. It is difficult to get to. How would you get a 55-gallon drum to the woods like that unless the drum goes first and then the people come after? You get my meaning? So the hunter had been there before. He is a local, and he had said that just the previous season, he had been through that area and hadn't seen anything. He was pretty confident in that fact that he had hunted there during the previous season believes he would have seen it if it was present during the last hunting season, but he didn't see it, 
could you miss it? I think you could, right? Because if it's old and rusted and you're out in the woods and the leaves are turning, it's the same color as the barrel, you could miss it. But he was adamant that he had been there before and just didn't see it. So they pinpointed it going into the woods about that same year, 1985. So this shocked Allenstown, right? It's an area that is devoid of serious crime. And now you've got two homicides in a barrel, two murder victims. And right away, your mind goes to that's mother and daughter. Hadn't been determined yet. They did do an autopsy pretty quickly. And they came back with two causes of death. And it was blunt force trauma, apparently to the head. And that was the cause of death. It was wrapped in plastic and they were addressed. And keep in mind the forensic environment we were operating back then. The police didn't have DNA. That was a decade away. And man, we were just kind of in the Stone Age. It was 1985, not super long ago. But in terms of forensics, man, it was a long way off. But the police worked and they worked it hard. So police attempt to identify these two people through ordinary means. They start with the missing persons reports in the local area. Then they expand that to New Hampshire, then to Vermont, and then nationwide. But nothing is really coming up that would fit the age bracket of what is thought to be mother and daughter. Again, don't forget that hadn't been confirmed yet, but... They're doing everything they can to track down the typical missing persons reports and then interview those people that reported their loved ones missing. Nothing really hit a home run here, and they're stymied, quite frankly. How does a girl of that age, 8 to 10, go missing and nobody reports it? I think it happens a lot more than you think, guys, and I think it definitely happened a lot more in the 80s when we were so segmented by state, right? If you're reported missing in New Hampshire, will they know about it in Tennessee? Not like today. And I was just looking at some photographs of where the drum was found, and it is remote, but there are some homes, there are some roads. It's a state forest, and it is big, and it is rural, guys. But there are some houses on the outskirts of it, I could see that through, I don't know if it was a helicopter shot or what, not too far away, but the cops are just stymied at this point. The New Hampshire State Police continue to work it, and in May of 2000, the case was reassigned within the state police, and whomever was assigned with this homicide said, okay, let's go back and do another search of the area. We're going to broaden the scope. And they do that, guys. And the craziest thing ever is they find another barrel, another 55-gallon drum. And, man, the blood must have just drained from the faces of these guys that were out there at the time. There it is. And you know what's inside is a cop. They open it up, and there's two kids in there, guys. And decomposed, smell. I can't even explain it to you. I really can't. But... Now you have two more victims. An autopsy would be done pretty quickly. And again, blunt force trauma for both victims. Now there's four victims and two drums, guys. Can you imagine that? And does it give the state police, I hate to say this, you know, a black eye? 
for missing this, that they didn't enlarge the search area beforehand? I think it does a little bit. All right, guys, I meant to let you know that the people of Allenstown, New Hampshire, kind of took this to heart. And the first two bodies that were recovered, which was thought to be mother and daughter, again, not confirmed for quite some time, but the people of Allenstown took up a collection and had them buried in consecrated ground. And don't forget, these two were Jane Doe's. So these good people of Allenstown, New Hampshire, wrote on the tombstone, Here lies the mortal remains known only to God of a woman aged 23 to 33 and a girl child aged 8 to 10. The slain bodies were found on November 10th, 1985 in Bear Brook State Park. May their souls find peace in God's loving care. Well, God bless the good people of Allenstown. I pray that those souls do find peace in God's loving care. That is a, a wish of mine, and I'm sure it is of yours as well. But the case marches on. All right, guys, this is one of the most complex stories I've ever heard. And it's mostly because there's a transient nature to what happens in this case. And it stems all over the country, really. And it kind of harkens back to an old America where you could just leave a state or a section of the country and go somewhere else and change your name. And boom, you're basically a new person. I mean, if the cops are looking for you, it'll crumble pretty quickly. But if nobody's really on your trail, you could get away with it. All right, guys. So the timeline on this is all over the place, but I'm going to give you what I can and some things may be omitted or condensed because it's just such a long story. In terms of identification, it was a step-by-step process over many years. And it developed as DNA technology got so much better as to where we are today. So as you can imagine, with every leap and bound in DNA technology, they applied it to this Bear Brook murder case. And it assisted, it really did. And the identities of those in those drums were eventually ascertained. And we'll go step by step. In the first drum, we found out that the woman who was reported to be aged 23 to 33, she's obviously the adult female in the group, and her name was found to be Marylise Elizabeth Honeychurch. And she had resided in New Hampshire. The girl found with her was Marie Vaughn, age seven. So the estimate was a little bit off. Marie Vaughn was Marilise Honeychurch's daughter. And I don't believe these full identifications came until 2015 or so. But I'm telling you, the timeline on this is difficult to follow. So that was the first two bodies found in the oil drum, essentially. And in 2000, if you remember, there was two more bodies. It gets worse. Two more children's bodies. And they had estimated one child to be between the age of two and four, and the other one, uh, literally a baby. The baby was 11 months, and her name was Sarah McWaters. And she was 11 months old, guys. Didn't even make it a year and it was horrible, it was a horrible scene. And the cops who basically opened this tomb of an oil drum, 
I don't know if love would be the same. All right, so just to recap, found in the first drum in 1985 was Mary Elise Honeychurch, and the girl, age seven, confirmed to be Marie Vaughn, and that was mom and daughter. And in the second oil drum was Sarah McWaters, age 11 months. How could this guy do this to this baby? But Sarah McWaters, 11 months, was also the daughter of Merrilee's Honeychurch. There's two separate dads here. And there is a suspect here, and he is not the biological dad of either of those two. But there is an unidentified child still, and she was between the age of two and four. This child's DNA was found to be compatible with the suspect's DNA. He was, in fact, confirmed to be this little girl's dad. And she is still unnamed at this point. It's crazy. They all died by blunt force trauma. And what something I mentioned earlier in this pod was the drums. Do the drums go into the woods first? Empty? Because they're much lighter. I think they would. And then this guy does this deed and puts them all in these barrels, you know? One of them is his own kid. Smashes them in the head, all of them, and dumps them in these oil barrels. My God. All right, guys, in this next component, I'm going to tell you about the perpetrator, or at least the suspect. This man is suspected in these four brutal homicides and at least one other and maybe more. He was super transient, and his real name was Terry Peter Rasmussen. But he went by several aliases, and he was known in New Hampshire as Bob Evans. But guys, he went by several aliases. He went by Bob Evans, Curtis Mayo Kimball, Jerry Mockerman, and several other aliases, guys. And this guy was transient from California to New Hampshire, Arizona, I believe, Hawaii. This guy would literally get arrested. He got arrested under the name Curtis Mayo Kimball in California in 85. And it's just weird how fingerprints never match up to any other crimes of this guy. He kind of just flew under the radar. This guy, his real name was Terry Peter Rasmussen, and he's obviously a serial killer, right? He likely killed those four people. And we know he killed at least one other person, and I'll tell you about that. He was in prison for it. But most of the state police in New Hampshire who worked this case say the victims most likely died between late 1978 and 1981. And they believe that's when the victims went into the woods in those barrels. But again, that hunter was pretty adamant that he had been there the previous hunting season. So it's just hard to ascertain everything, especially since it was so long ago. So I suppose the barrels could have been, you may need more than one person to help you with that. So another question mark here, and this case is full of question marks, but they were in the woods in 85, and I guess that's where we have to start. So Terry Peter Rasmussen, also Bob Evans, and he's all those other guys. But in 1977, he was going by Bob Evans. And he worked at the Wombeck Mills in Manchester, and he was head electrician there. 
And this is a big mill and they need all those services an electrician would provide. And supposedly this guy was pretty squared away. And it's strange. He looks in 77 and later in photographs, looks like a regular normal guy. But I guess that Ted Bundy looked normal too, right? So he'd bebop all around Manchester. And by 1980, he was arrested for theft of services, electricity. I think he was stealing electricity from somebody else's apartment. He also wrote a bad check in Manchester, took a pinch on that. There's not a lot of personal witnesses to his character or comportment, right? So you don't ever hear some, oh, yeah, he was a loon or he was just a quiet guy or he was exuberant. So much time has passed, guys. I think all of those people who knew him are probably long gone. But we can put him in New Hampshire, in Manchester specifically, as of 1981. He was involved with a woman by the name of Denise Bowden, B-E-A-U-D-I-N. And she was from Manchester, and I believe she was living with Bob Evans, who reportedly had no other kids with him at that time. But Denise had a six-month-old daughter. Bob Evans or Terry Rasmussen was not the father of that child. And reportedly around Thanksgiving, actually on Thanksgiving that day, Denise had a bit of a blowout with her family and they skedaddle from New Hampshire. Now, this is strange because Denise leaves, and I guess she's upset. I don't know what the fight was about. I'm sure it was probably to do with Bob Evans, right? But regardless, from Thanksgiving 1981, Denise Bowden has never been heard from again. Never. So there's no family checking in. Our Christmas rolls around. They're not around New Hampshire. They're not around Manchester. And nobody looks for her. It's just you're up in smoke. You go out the door. You're angry. Nobody ever sees you again. So nobody files a missing persons report. And Bob Evans is right behind Denise. And nobody sees him again for quite some time either. How does that happen? You just poof up in smoke. So that's 1981, guys. According to the New Hampshire State Police, those kids and Marilise Honeychurch could have been in the woods already. We just don't know. It's weird. Like, he's running around with this Denise Bowden. Where was Marilise Honeychurch and those kids? You know, it's weird that there's no overlap. You know what I'm saying? And I realize we don't know when those kids and Miss Honeychurch went in to the forest there in Allenstown. But it seems like Bob Evans follows Denise, or the other way around, Denise follows Bob, and they go to California. Bob Evans surfaces again in 1984, and this time he had been hired under the name Curtis Kimball by an electrical company in Los Altamos, California which I find weird, right? When you graduate from the trades as a, an electrician, journeyman, master electrician, there's licenses. You have to present those licenses to say who you are and what you've accomplished. So I don't know how we pulled that off, but again, it was the 80s and you could BS your way around most paperwork. And then Evans was arrested in 85 
in Cyprus, California, which I think is next door to Los Alamitos. So he's getting arrested. He's getting jobs and nothing ever comes up, right? I get a speeding ticket and I don't pay it. And I've got the SWAT team on my ass. This guy just goes about his life and moves on. It's just totally strange, guys. So 1986 rolls around and he's working under the name Gordon Jensen at a holiday host RV park, also in California, but this time in Santa Cruz. Don't forget, just prior to that in November 85, the first barrels found in Allenstown, right? So it's just weird. I know Marylise and the kids could have went into the woods earlier than that, you know, just as the state police had said. So he just goes about his business, meets another woman. So Terry Rasmussen, Bob Evans, whomever he really may be, in June 86, he abandons Denise Bowden's daughter in California. And that's when he was working at that host RV park. He just leaves the daughter there knowing other people will take care of her. It's later confirmed that it's not his daughter. And she is probably one of the luckiest people on the planet because she could have ended up like Marie Vaughn or Sarah McWaters or that other unidentified child that was, in fact, his offspring, right? And just going through this guy's record and the timeline, he gets pinched time and time again. Charges do get filed for abandoning that child at the RV park, and that would later come back to bite him in the ass. But the girl who was abandoned would eventually give DNA, and that did give some investigators some insight as to whom she was. She was definitely Denise Bowden's daughter. Denise has never been seen again, guys, and I don't think her outcome, if she's ever found, will be a good one. I don't know how much help that girl can be in this case. She did take DNA, like I said, but she left Manchester as a six-month-old and then was abandoned in that park in 86. So how much can she really remember of her mom and all that? I just don't think she came to a good end, and it was by this guy, Bob Evans's hand. But this guy gets pinched time and time again, and you would think at a certain point something would pop on the system, right, of fingerprints. Your fingerprints was the identifier back then, but nothing ever pops up. He was eventually jammed up on the child abandonment thing, and that's when his fingerprints matched to a different name. And I think it was Gordon Jensen and Bob Evans. And if you just had a curious policeman at one of those agencies, maybe this could have been solved a long time ago. But that's wishful thinking. One of the things I find absent from my research is any real insight into who this Terry Peter Rassman, Bob Evans, really was. What's he like on a day-to-day basis? He has some outward signs of alcohol abuse on his face as he started getting older. I wonder if that was the problem here, alcohol abuse. You don't hear if he was specifically abusive, say, to Marilise Honeychurch or Denise Bowden. You don't really hear that. And I know the passage of time dulls memories, but 
you think somebody would have written it down somewhere. You'd get really no insight into this guy Rasmussen. And quite frankly, guys, I think I'm going to have to break this up. This will be part one and next week will be part two. There's just so much to cover. And the next portion of this is going to blow your mind. That I guarantee. All right, guys. So next week, we're going to get into how Miss Honeychurch and her kids were identified. And it's a great piece of detective work. Unfortunately, it didn't come from a police detective, but from a librarian in this case. And she kind of broke this case wide open. She's had the most success in this case ever, I think. So I'm going to introduce you to her next week. So make sure you stay tuned. If you need me, my email is barry at bostonconfidential.net. That's barry at bostonconfidential.net. Send along an email, say hello. Give us a good review on Apple if you can. Otherwise, I think that's all I have for you right now. And I'll see you on the flip side, guys. <laughs>